This is a regular meeting of the Building Inspection Commission. I would like to remind everyone to please mute yourself if you're not speaking. The first item on the agenda is roll call. President Beto? Here. Vice President Tam? Here. Commissioner Alexander Tooth? Here. Commissioner Epler? Here. Commissioner Newman? Here. And Commissioner Summer? Here. Okay, we have a quorum. And um, next is our land acknowledgement. The Building Inspection Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatish Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatish Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatish Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Um, next, for uh, members of the public who are listening in, the uh, listen public comment call-in number is 415-655-0001. The access code is 2487-822-2830. To raise your hand for public comment on a specific agenda item, press star three when prompted by the meeting moderator. The next item then is item two, findings to allow teleconference meetings under California Government Code section 54953E. Um, is there a motion to continue with the teleconference meetings? Motion. We have a motion by Commissioner Newman. Second. And a second by President Beto. Are all commissioners in favor? Aye. 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 Okay. Thank you. That motion carries. Next, um, we have item three, um, President's opening remarks. Good morning, fellow commissioners and public. In the past several months of this year, I'm encouraged by the progress the Commission has made in conjunction with the leadership at the Department of Building Inspection. The pre-planned check process is a step in the right direction. As the President, I am keen on seeing continued progress on streamlining the permit process, as well as continuing to learn more about the operational improvements at DBI. Thank you. Thank you. Is there um, any public comment on the President's opening remarks? Um, seeing none, next we have item four, director's report. Uh, um, good morning, President Beto and members of the Building Inspection Commission. I'm Christine Gasparic, Assistant Director, filling in for Patrick O'Reardon, who's out this week. Uh, and to begin with, I want to recognize Deputy Director Neville Pereira uh, for the launch of the pre-plan check uh, process earlier this month. Um, this so, sorry, interrupt you. Could you uh, make sure your mic is on? Press. Is there a, a button that your mic is on? It's on? You can't hear? Does that work? Um, yes. Okay. Do you want me to start over? Or? Uh, sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sorry. In your name, please. Sorry, that's our fault. Oh, sorry. Okay, starting over. <laughs> Good morning, uh, President Beto, members of the Building Inspection Commission. I'm Christine Gasparic, DBI's Assistant Director and I'm filling in for Patrick O'Reardon while he's out this week. 
And to begin with, I want to recognize Deputy Director Neville Pereira uh, for the launch of the pre-plan check process uh, earlier this month. This new process helps us manage our workload better, um, and it's one of a series of operational improvements that we'll be rolling out in the next few months. These operational improvements are meaningful to our customers, um, in this case especially uh, customers who have small and medium-sized in-house review projects, because uh, those projects will be able to move quicker through the system in a more streamlined way. Uh, but it's also better for our staff who have more manageable workloads, and, uh, and this helps us ensure accountability. So thank you for your work on this, Deputy Director Pereira, and we're looking forward to rolling out additional operational improvements in the next, com in the next few months. Um, secondly, I want to talk about our uh, efforts to continue to build a great team here at DVI, um, and I'm happy to introduce a new member of DVI's finance team, Junko Laksamana. Junko, you want to stand up and wave? Uh, <laughs> Junko is DVI's new finance manager um, and is going to manage our accounting and revenue groups as well as facilities and fleet management. She comes to us from the Board of Supervisors, where she was previously Deputy Director for Finance and Administration. Welcome to the team, Junko. Um, she's going to report to our new Deputy Director for Finance and Administration. Uh, we are still in the hiring process uh, for that position, and we hope to have someone on board in the next couple of months. And finally, uh, every three years, uh, California and the San Francisco building codes are updated, and you on the commission have a role in the process. Uh, I want to acknowledge Michelle Yu and the technical services team for their hard work uh, to put together the code update package that we will present to you for approval likely next month. Um, if you approve those code changes, they'll be drafted into legislation and the process uh, will then wrap up by the end of the year. And today we're going to have Barry Hooper from the Department of the Environment here uh, to talk about some of the new code changes that promote green building pra practices. Um, but next month, we'll also highlight some of the other uh, trends and themes in, uh, in building code development. So we look forward to uh, returning next month with that. And thank you. This concludes the director's report. Thank you. Our next item is 4B, update on major projects. We have the slides. Okay. Um, if, I'm sorry, we could have the slides for item 4, 4B. Okay, just one moment, we'll give you presenter duties. Just a moment, sorry, we're checking.
store, but they would need to be at at them. We just we, we need to do this like throughout the meeting. So is it should we take a quick recess? We just want to figure this out because throughout the meeting we're going to need to fill it. So <coughs> if we could uh, just take a, a five minute recess. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
we are ready to resume. Major on the we're on major projects. Good morning, commissioners. The following slides are intended to highlight the volume and valuation of projects costing $5 million or more that are filed, issued, and completed, as well as we're going to profile a few projects that bring especially high value in terms of their contributions to housing and community assets. Uh, next slide, please. In June 2022, seven permit applications with an estimated construction value of $5 million or more were filed with DBI. These projects are anticipated to add 1,500 new housing units and are collectively valued at over $575 million. This includes an application for 966 units in the 10 South Van Ness development at the old Honda dealership site, uh, which is valued at $430 million. There was also an application for 11 Frida Kahlo Way, part of the Balboa Reservoir Project, with 151 100% affordable units and a construction valuation of $80 million. Next slide. Last month, we issued three high-value permits with a collective valuation of over $101 million. These projects are associated with 178 new housing units. One of these permits was for 55 Bruton on Treasure Island, which will have 178 units and is valued at over $84 million. There was also a permit for a major renovation of the San Cristina building at 1000 Market Street, a 58-unit permanent supportive housing building. It's expected to cost $10 million. Next slide. Finally, uh, DBI issued certificates of final completion for six high-value projects. One of these was for 800 Indiana Street, which brings online 326 new units. The other is 242 Han Street, which brought 167 new 100% affordable housing units online. Together, these projects have a construction valuation of $195 million. And that concludes the presentation. Thank you. The next item is 4C, update on DBI's finances. Get to the mic. Thank you. Good morning, members of the commission. I'm Junko Laksamana, new finance manager for the department. Today, I will provide a brief update on the department's finances. We provided the monthly financial report for June 2022. However, please note that the revenue and expenditure numbers are not final at this time, since fiscal year 2021-22 books are still open and we will be working on the year-end accounting procedures um, for the next uh, few weeks uh, until mid-August when the city closes its books. The final fiscal year 2021-22 numbers will be available in September. You can advance the slide to the next one. Is there a mic on? Yes, it is. Can you it's speak into the mic, please? Sure. You can speak a little bit louder, sorry. Okay, is it better? Yes. Okay, as of June 30th, 2022, the total revenue is 84.3 million. 57.3 million of that are operating revenues from charges for services, fees collected, interest and investment, and expenditure recovery. 
The operating revenues increased by $3.1 million compared to last year due to increases in plant checking, application extension fee, building permits, plumbing permits, electrical permits, and code enforcement offset by a decrease in interest and investment revenue. On the expenditure side, the total revenues, uh, total expenditures as of June 30th, 2022 are $70.3 million and are projected to be $89.5 million. This is because we're still processing a large number of billings in coming weeks. In the end, department projects a $2.5 million surplus in expenditures. Um, as for the fiscal year 2022-23, we are only about three weeks into the new year, so we don't have the monthly report at this time. Uh, we will provide the July report next month. Um, that's all I have today, and I'm available for any questions. Great. Thank you. So our uh, next item is 4D, update on proposed or recently enacted state or local legislation. My check. Can you hear me okay? Um, yeah, awesome. yeah, just speak a little bit louder. Thank you. Okay. Good morning, President Vito, Vice President Tame, Commissioners. I'm Ray Law, Legislative Affairs Manager at DBI. Today I will be providing a brief uh, legislative update with a short presentation. So, uh, for local update, there has not been uh, much movement on the pending DBI related legislations as the Board of Supervisors has just wrapped up their budget process and is heading to the August recess. Um, but for state bills update this month, you might have noticed a shorter list of pending bills in your meeting package. Um, this is a selected list of pending bills from the 40-page um, update we used to get from Calbo, California Building Officials. Uh, for this month's legislative update, we decided to make some changes by conducting a preliminary review of all pending bills and the most relevant ones are included in the list in front of you, concerning accessory dueling units, permitting for housing projects, measures in response to climate change, including residential solar energy system, electrical vehicle uh, charging standard, among other things. Of the 10 selected bills uh, in the list, I want to highlight um, two of the bills uh, with this short presentation. The first one is AB 2244, uh, as we mentioned in our June update, um, this bill requires a local agency to process residential housing permits in a specified time period, depending on the size of the development project. Establish a digital permitting system and develop model applications for reference. This bill is currently in the Senate and is referred to Budget and Fiscal Review Committee again after the latest amendments since our June meeting. The key amendments include specification of the application examples that will be provided by local agencies, clarify the permit, uh, permit timeline from calendar days to business days, among other changes. Next slide, please. The next one I want to highlight is SB 379. This bill requires local jurisdictions to implement an online automated permitting platform that verifies co-compliance and issues permits in real time or allows local jurisdictions to issue permits in real time for a residential solar energy system with certain size. This bill was passed by the Senate and is currently in the Assembly for additional discussions and votes. That concludes um, 
my updates, and I'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you. I'd like to extend to my fellow commissioners if they have questions. Commissioner Toot. Um, this is um, this is not on the ones that you highlighted. So thank you for the 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 uh, state bills that you've highlighted. This is on the um, the hearing items. This, this is this page here, and on the uh, for file number two one zero five one four. What page are you? Oh, sorry. It's the first page, like after this presentation. Oh, no, one, but it's it's the first page after the slides. Okay, thank you. Um, so for the, I just wanted to confirm that the the hearing on the oversight and safety regarding the mandatory soft story retrofit program that there's been no movement on that from the board of supervisors since um, June of 2021. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, and then and the following one, the um, hearing on the building operations component of the 2022 climate action plan. Um, that it was received and assigned to the land use and transportation committee do you have any updates on that is that scheduled or do you have any information on that to my knowledge that, that has not been scheduled yet but okay. it's still pending at the assigned committee okay thank you so much you're welcome if no one has questions i have questions for you um on uh, AB 2234, that's specifically for residential housing permits, is that correct? That is correct. Um, and I've stated this before, but I think that, the, well, I've asked this before, not stated this before, but this basically turns uh, discretionary approval into a ministerial approval. Is that how that would work for 2234 with the city of San Francisco? I mean, how would that affect the city of San Francisco? That's the intention of this state bill. However, right now, um, the bill has been updated with some amendments, which will serve this purpose by allowing local jurisdictions to have a little more time when we review permit applications. The, the amendments you're talking about would allow the jurisdictions more, more time than what the bill allows? Is, what, is that what you're saying? That's right. Okay. I, I just think as a good practice, not just for housing, that, and I've, you know, uh, expressed this uh, sentiment that this obviously prioritizes housing, but I, would, I, I think that all permits that, you know, affect the city's economic development, especially coming out of the pandemic, would benefit from this if it isn't required to be a ministerial process, but, uh, um, and still has to remain a discretionary process, but in good practice to, to continue expediting these permits. I have one more question on <coughs> SB 379. I think the only term that I have a question about is issuing permits in real time. Can you define what real time means? To my knowledge, uh, the intent of this state bill is to have local jurisdictions to implement a online, an online platform that issue permits instantly. Oh, okay. Yeah, however, uh, I think in practice, uh, we have uh, some questions about that because every project is different, right, with its size, with um, the building itself. So we have been working with the mayor's office with, to provide some feedback um, with regard to this bill. Um, yeah. So one other question on the sure. automated permitting platform, and if that's possible, that's great, but I understand the complexity of the various permits. Does this automated permitting platform also 
uh, it would require EP like electronic like electronically submitting your plan. You could not do this if you had, you know, paper copies. And I'm certainly a proponent of the EPR system because it basically saves the cost of uh, printing paper, the bulk of it. If you've ever had to carry, you know, pounds and pounds of drawings coming into the city, it's, it certainly expedites that process. So that's something that would be required as part of this bill. That's right. And I think um, naturally that will require everyone to submit their plans and all the materials electronically. So, so that's why we can process the applications online, right? However, I think there's still benefit to keep the paper plan and application material for equity uh, reasons. I understand the equity of that of that purpose, but I believe that the CID, DBI has a printing or scanning uh, service that allows uh, applicants to come in and, and and scan their plans. Is that is that well known to the to the community or the or the applicants? I'm sure they, they it is when they come into DBI. Yeah, that's available at the permit center. Um, we had when Rebecca Mayer came the commission earlier she reported on that 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 just that service opened I don't know, a few months ago um, and we have done outreach to customers um, so I think it's pretty widely known um, and I want to just also add to what uh, Ray was saying there about the um, instant permitting we already have that system for trades permits and other um, no plans permits like our re-roofing permits uh, Folks who are contractors, who are licensed contractors, can sign up for an account and they can go online and um, instantly get permits. Um, this bill would expand the types of solar permits that you could get instantly. Um, we do believe that uh, some of the permits that they want to make instantaneous uh, would benefit from plan review ahead of time because if you don't do plan review ahead of time, then um, that burden shifts to the field inspection and sometimes people might do the installation wrong or you know it's, it's better to address any concerns that we have at the plan review stage rather than at the installation stage. And to directors um, and to Christine's point I think it's always Could you speak good. into the mic please? Oh sorry and to Christine's point I think it's always good to keep an open line of communications between our applicant and the uh, plan uh, and the plan checker uh, upfront right? so they can address any kind of potential issues at the beginning of the process instead of um, dealing with the installed system on site. Yeah, and I know from past discussions with the leadership at DBI that, that, you're, that you're closely tracking these bills and also trying to effectuate things that are practical. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I think that that's a really good measure on DBI's part. Thank you very much. Uh, Do my fellow commissioners have any other questions? Madam Secretary. Deputy City Attorney Kaplan. Yes, the, uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan. I just want to clarify the AB 2234 would apply to non-discretionary permits. It does not change um, any permits from discretionary to non-discretionary in the most current version. No, I understand. I think that, that, that it does offer good practice, though. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, 4E, update on code enforcement. Good morning, Commissioners. Um, uh, Joe Duffy, uh, Deputy Director of Inspection Services. I'm pleased to provide an update on the activities and performance of our Inspection Services Division. 
In June uh, 2022, the Building Electrical and Plumbing Divisions conducted over 11,000 inspections, which is pretty consistent with previous months, and we're holding up that level. 88% um, of those inspections were conducted within two business days of the date requested by the customer, falling slightly short of our target of, of uh, 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 90%. However, when looking uh, cumulatively over the last fiscal year, which ended last month, all three divisions met the 90% target. In the same month, our housing inspection services conducted 715 inspections, with 91 of them being uh, routine inspections of um, multifamily housing. The building, electrical, and plumbing divisions received 472 complaints and responded to 95% of them within three business days, which again is well exceeding their target of 85%. Additionally, our code enforcement division abated 40 complaints with notices of violation and sent 92 cases for a, a hearing. We have, been we, have, we have been having internal discussions about performance targets for our housing inspection services division, and we believe it makes the most sense to adopt a target of 85% for safety and heat complaints while keeping the expectations of a one business day response time. This will align housing, housing metrics with other inspection divisions. With that context in mind, in the month of June, our housing inspection services received 19 safety and heat complaints and responded to 90% of them within one business day. They received 282 other complaints and responded to 94% of them within three business days. Housing inspection services also abated 307 cases with a notice of violation and they sent 40 cases for a, a, a director's hearing. Jamie Sanbonsimo, our Director of Housing Inspection Services, will provide a subsequent presentation with information on the work of his division. Sorry, and I, he's a Chief uh, Housing Inspector. Jamie is our Chief Housing Inspector, not Director. Sorry. So, um, but, um, with that, I'm, I'm available for any questions on the uh, Inspection Services update. Opening that up to my fellow commissioners. None. Thank you, Director. Thank you. Deputy Director Duffy. Next item is 4F, update on housing inspection services. Good morning, Commissioners. James Sambon Matsu, Chief Housing Inspector. Um, we wanted to do a quick overview of the uh, housing inspection program. Uh, the uh, goal of the program is to maintain a minimum standard of habitability um, for all tenants in the city of San Francisco. The minimum standard of habitability is the right of all tenants who rent an apartment. It's a, uh, something we take very seriously. The photo that we have here is of some water intrusion in a uh, uh, unit out in the Bayview. Uh, you can see the closet door uh, sitting on the side there. Um, you have to speak, speak a little bit louder. Can we go to the next one, please? Yeah. 
So uh, what we're showing here is because the housing code is very broad and there's different kinds of violations, um, there's a, a wide range of violations. Um, so some person may think that the violation of the housing code could be a really serious issue, which is like a four-story um, wooden set of stairs in the back um, needing replacement, or could be a door, uh, yeah, a peephole in a door. So there's hundreds of different kinds of violations, and what we wanted to do here is break down um, by percentage which are the most common. Um, so nothing very unusual. There's lead, uh, paint issues, uh, heat, hot water, stairs. Uh, these are all the things that they could be minor to somebody from a contractor point of view, but to the person living in the unit, um, it, it's really important. Nine um, percent is about total of what, uh, when a permit is required for that violation. So 91% does not require a permit. Okay, next one. Mr. Sobomatsu, could you speak into the mic, please? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. I'm going to adjust it here. It might make the sound a little bit taller. All right. Next, next slide. So San Francisco is unique in that we have more enforcement tools than most cities have. Um, so we wanted to show um, what are the tools we have in housing inspections and how do they compare to other cities. Um, so this gives you an overview of the code enforcement process for the housing code for tenant habitability. Um, and we, we had 20 cities in this column on the right. We sort of whittled it down for graphic purposes to 15. And you can see that San Francisco has more tenants by percentage than any other city in the United States. Um, most cities do have a housing code. Most cities do have housing inspection, and most will issue a notice of violation. Um, but then there's a sort of a drop-off. Um, the next step in our process is to have what we call a director's hearing, where um, a penalty can be placed on the property and a lot of cities aren't willing to take that step. Um, it's a very time-consuming step, uh, but it's very important in order to be effective and get the landlord to make the correction. So San Francisco also issues a financial penalty, uh, and those are very difficult to make it stick, so if the penalty isn't paid, uh, we put a lien on the property. If you go to the next one, moving from left to right, if that penalty still isn't paid, it appears on the landlord's tax bill. Um, and that's something that a lot of cities won't do. And then we also do litigation with the um, commissioners at the litigation committee. And then we have online complaint tracking. So somebody, a tenant, a landlord, anybody can look it up and see what the status is of their complaint or whatever the violations we're talking about. And then we also perform community outreach, which is an extremely important part of our process. Okay. Can 
we have the next slide, please? So um, to break down the total number of cases that we get in housing inspection, we see there's 3,132. And then to put that in perspective, when you're um, convening as the Abatement Appeals Board, you might hear one out of those 3,000 cases that we're dealing with. Out of those, um, over 1,000 received notices of violation. Over 200 were sent to director's hearing. And then they're either abated or in progress. Um, a tenant can still take concurrent action as long as any one of those violations is still outstanding and the case will remain open until every single thing is done. So an NOV could have two violations on it or it could have 50. Um, but the case will remain active until every single one of those things is fixed. We hold 50 hearings every year. Um, it's a time-consuming process, very labor-intensive. But we get all the cases through in the end. So it, it's a really important process to us. We work really hard every day. It's not all about um, landlords and tenants need each other. You can't be a, a landlord without tenants, and you can't be a tenant without a landlord. So we like to see people coming together, working things out, um, mediation, or uh, working together. And we're here to help. We believe it's important work. It's important um, for our community. And I'll take any questions. Thank you. I'd like to open this up to my fellow commissioners, and especially Commissioner Toot, who might have uh, some, some important points for the rest of us to learn from. Sure. I thank you for your presentation, and thank you, um, Commissioner Vito, for, or President Vito, for putting this on the agenda today. I'm sorry, um, we can speak a little bit louder. Sorry. Yeah, that's the theme of today, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We're all very quiet today. <laughs> yeah. um, I I wondered if you, so for those of you who don't know, and I guess for disclosure reasons, I, uh, in the early 2000s, worked for Tenderloin Housing Clinic in the code enforcement um, program. Uh, but the program has developed over time and has changed a little bit over time. Some of the spaces are, are the same, so... I am lucky to maintain some of my friendships and relationships with my pri previous coworkers. But I was wondering, Chief Housing Inspector, could you talk about, uh, since we are the only jurisdiction that has this relationship with tenant and community groups and the apartment association as well, not exclusively tenant groups, um, could you talk about that unique relationship and what relationship that has um, with the inspectors? How does that, like, how, how does that impact the work that your division does and how, um, how, is, how is that a tool that you use? Or we have access to. Sure. Uh, thank you, Commissioner. The, um, the outreach program has two main thrusts to it, and one is sort of a mediation, cooperation, trying to deal with issues. Um, maybe they're not as serious. Um, it's more of a communication issue between the two parties. But um, our inspector can easily get roped in and spend months and months dealing with a standoff between the two parties. So the it's actually one of the few times where the landlord groups and the tenant groups work together on something. Um, and they pointed to this uh, for years and years about how important it is. And it, it breaks down some of the mistrust that sometimes forms. 
Um, and so the, uh, the program is really important on trying to bring people together. It, and it also saves resources for housing inspectors. Um, because in housing inspectors, there to identify something, cite it, and follow it through. And those sort of counseling skills and holding people's hands through the process, um, sometimes that, that works better when it's coming from a community that the person is from. So if you're a landlord, it, it, they'll hear something from their own community before they'll hear it and understand it and accept it from an inspector. But, and also on the tenant side, um, there's cultural issues, there's a fear of going to the government with a problem. Um, and so the community, cent there's centers where people go anyway for help, for all kinds of things. And uh, it's very helpful to the inspector to be able to say, hey, if you talk to this counseling group, they can help you work it out with this other person. Now, the second thrust of it is to identify really the worst, most egregious problems. Um, sometimes you don't see those in a common area where an inspector might be looking, um, and the person might be afraid to file a complaint. And we've seen that some of the stuff that we get, give you guys on, at the litigation committee is really the most egregious things we see all year. And that's when we're looking to drive a point home to that landlord and say, and a lot of times they've been negligent and haven't responded to our notices of violation. And we wouldn't have known about it if it weren't for the community group. So the legal action from the city attorney's office, uh, working together with the litigation committee, is really what gives us the best result in the worst cases. Thank you, Chief Inspector um, Sabanmatsu. Um, and also for, uh, I think you were instrumental in the tour that some of us um, uh, tended, which I did as well. Um, and I'm still learning about the issues around these SROs, so I think we can, maybe today's not the day, but you know, going forward, understanding the frequency that we would want um, a presentation from yourself and your division, just to understand some of the challenges that um, housing inspection goes through and just in general uh, educating the commission on some of the things that are ongoing because housing in San Francisco is certainly a hot subject as, is, as well as it is for the Bay Area. So thank you for your presentation. I'd like to open up to my fellow commissioners. Oh, excuse me, Vice President Tam, I didn't see your name there. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for the presentation, uh, Chief Inspector. I had a question. Um, it says here 3,132 complaint cases. Um, violation cases that, that are verified is 1154. Now, the 1978 complaints that, that get investigated and are unable to verify, I mean, what constitutes a, a, or what is, what's a scenario that it doesn't, or an, what's an unable to verify situation? Um, it seems like a very high amount, a uh, high number for complaints to, to just not have any issues. Well, people call us for all sorts of reasons, um, and some of them don't have anything to do with the housing code. Um, they're simply looking for somebody to, to talk to, or they have a problem that's not related to the housing code. Um, so you get all kinds of calls for all kinds of reasons. Now, once we do get something that is about the housing code, um, sometimes they call anonymously, and so sometimes we're not able to access whatever it is they're talking about, or they don't tell us, they don't describe very well where it is, so we don't, we don't know where to look for it. 
um, and they don't leave a phone number to call us back. But if we do have a, um, we don't, I, we don't disclose the identity of the person that's calling us um, to the owner or to anyone, but people still are afraid to, for some reason, give us that information. So it, it could be a communication issue with the person that's trying to file the complaint. Um, we also do get a, a significant share of cases where it's a neighboring, it's a homeowner of calling about a neighboring homeowner about something. And so a lot of those can be unable to verify. Illegal units can be unable to verify. Um, it could be something that someone thinks is a violation, and, and it isn't. And that's one of the purposes of the inspector going there and say, that, that doesn't rise to the level of violation of the housing code. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Tam, for digging into the numbers. Um, I don't, unless my other commissioners have questions, I don't have any further questions. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Is there a public comment on the director's report um, items 4A through F? There is. Good morning. My name is Jerry Dreiler. I have a question on the uh, operating statement, specifically revenues. There's a almost, it looks like, $27 million transfer from the project fund. And I'm wondering, what is the project fund? Why the transfer? And what is the balance in the fund before and after the transfer? I mean, that's like 25% of the annual operating budget, revenue budget. It's in the revenue uh, comment on page two. Mr. Dratler's staff can look into it, but they won't be able to respond at this time. Thank you. Okay, next item is item five, um, general public comment. The BIC will take public comment on matters within the commission's jurisdiction that are not part of this agenda. Good morning, Commissioners Henry Carnilowitz. So I'm a frequent flyer at DBI going back to 1975 when DBI was over 450 McAllister and it was under DPW, and then when they moved over to 1660 Mission, and now in a beautiful building at 49 South Van Ness, where all the stations are all on the second floor, and it's just a great way to be able to go and get things done in one shot, uh, including the Office of Small Business. Um, one of the systems I really do like at DPI, and I work at other jurisdictions, is the PTS system. It is really, really good where you can actually see comments from different stations when it goes through the plan check review. And so if you have a query, if you want to find out what's going on, you can go to PTS system and get it right there. Uh, one more uh, comment I want to make is uh, currently, uh, one thing I really like at DBI also, <laughs> is that uh, when it comes to making appointments for inspectors to come out, and now they call the customer and they give you one hour or so to come and do an inspection. Most of the time, I had one just the other day, and it was a right on time. So once again, thank you guys. You're doing a great job. And as I say, I've been at it for, as you can tell, from 1975. It's quite a while, and it's been a pleasure working with DBI. And, and lastly, too, also, that's one of the best, best building departments in, in all jurisdictions that I've worked in. Thank you.
I have a slide. Good morning, my name is Jerry Durantler. San Francisco has a very strict building code section that protects its citizens from lead paint. The code section presumes that any building constructed before 1979 has lead-based paint, and the regulation applies to any person performing exterior work that disturbs or removes more than 100 square feet or 100 linear feet. This means if a contractor is doing dry rot repair, installing new windows, expanding a house, or painting a house built before 1979 and disturbs an area more than 10 by 10 feet, they need to comply with Code Section 327. Most of the houses in San Francisco were built before 1979. A contractor shall not disturb or remove lead-based paint, lead paint using prohibitive practices which include burning, high-pressure washing, sanding, or removal without a containment barrier system or a HEPA vacuum. The pictures in my July 6th email to Mr. Duffy and Mr. O'Reardon clearly show prohibited work practices at 25 17th Avenue. There were numerous other Section 327 violations at 25 17th Avenue that I enumerated in my whistleblower complaint, and you each should have a copy of that complaint. On June 17, 2022, DBI Inspector Birmingham visited 25 17th Avenue and made the following entry into the complaint I filed. Contractor needs to comply with SFEBC 327. Case will be referred to SFDPH. San Francisco Department of Public Health. At this point, a notice of violation should have been issued. What is most disturbing is DBI's failure to enforce the building code and how DBI covered up the code violations. This is clearly a case where the cover-up is worse than the crime. Only one of the six inspectors who worked on my complaint did their job properly. The other five covered it up. Director O'Reardon, how does your zero policy, tolerance policy apply in this case? Building inspection commissioners, I will continue to present examples of lax code enforcement until you address this problem. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any additional public comment? Is there any remote public comment? Okay, seeing none, um, we'll go to agenda item 6A, review and possible action to make recommendations to the Building Inspection Commission regarding current membership and reappointments to the Code Advisory Committee, um, in addition to a brief update from the nomination subcommittee. The current CAC members seeking reappointment are Stephen Harris, um, J. Edgar Finney, Tony Sanchez Correa, Arnie Lerner, Henry Carnilowitz, Renee Benyos, Mark Cunningham, Jonathan Rodriguez, Gina Santoni, Ira Dorder, and Zachary Nathan, 
Brian Salyers and Don Libby, and also, I'm sorry, and Jim Reed. Um, the terms to expire on August 10th. Um, there may be members here in person, and we realize that some of them are on remotely, so if we can um, get everyone together just for a moment. So if there are any um, persons um, here to be sworn, to be sworn in, uh, Mr. Cardinal Lewis, if you'd like to come, come forward. If, are there any other CAC members? And we see your, we see your names um, on WebEx, so we are going to un, unmute you now. And if we don't unmute you, if your name is not shown, please uh, press star three. I'm sorry, just one moment, um, a point of order. We do need a motion. Uh, we had a motion from, they were rec the, everyone was recommended from our nomination subcommittee, but is there a motion um, from the full building inspection commission to reappoint the members of the code advisory committee? I'd like to make a motion to reappoint. Is there a second? I will second. Okay, so there is a motion um, by Vice President Tim and a second by Commissioner Summer. And I'll do a roll call vote on that motion to uh, reappoint the members of the building inspection, I'm sorry, of the code advisory committee. Madam Secretary, one moment. Commissioner Shu, did you have a question? Uh, I just, I didn't quite hear it. D has this been a approved and recommended from the nomination subcommittee? Yes, it has. Okay, thank you. Yes. So, and is there any public comment on the, the motion to reappoint the members? Um, seeing none, I'll do a roll call vote. Uh, President Vito? Yes. Vice President Tam? Yes. Commissioner Alexander Toot? Yes. Commissioner Epler? Yes. Commissioner Newman? Commissioner Summer? Yes. Okay, the motion carries unanimously. And so uh, we'll begin to unmute the members, and I will read the oath, and you can repeat it after me. Okay, just one moment. Hello, um, Code Advisory Committee members. Can you hear us? Are you, you unmuted? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. So I'll begin to read the oath, and you can repeat after me. I state your name. I Do solemnly swear or affirm. Do solemnly swear or affirm. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. But I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. 
to the Constitution and the Constitution of the State of California and the Constitution of the State of California that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion or purpose of evasion and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which I'm about to enter and during such time and during such time, such time as I hold the office as I hold, as I hold the office of a member of the code advisory committee of a member, a member of the code, code advisory committee okay thank you and congratulations everyone thank, thank you thank you thank you I just want to say thank you, Commissioners. It's been an honor working on this committee for many years, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. No, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, you for and your work. Any other members have any comments? Okay. Tony Sanchez, Korea. I'd just like to thank uh, all the uh, technical staff that assists us in our work, and um, I really appreciate the members of the BIC uh, uh, attending our meetings lately. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And any any other uh, members have any comments? Okay. No, thank you. Well, thank you all for your service, and I will be reaching out to you to sign your oaths of office soon. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you everybody. Thank you. Um, next, we'll be on to six um, B, the update from the nomination subcommittee. Hi. Thank you. Um, I, I realize now that 6B would have probably been more clear if it had come before 6A. <laughs> Apologies for that. Um, we had our first nomination subcommittee um, a couple weeks ago, and it was my first time joining the committee. It was Commissioner Tam and I. Uh, and I just wanted to very quickly um, say uh, most of our meeting was discussing the upcoming vacancies in both the Code Advisory Committee and the Board of Examiners, and then recapping what those groups do, and um, talking about the process of how those positions are filled. Um, my, you know, one thing I was bringing up was a particular um, intentional effort to try to increase the diversity of the, of the people that are included in these different commissions. Um, and perhaps exploring other ways of doing outreach just to recruit for these different positions. So that's in process. I think that's important to, to both Commissioner Tam and I a, and these you know commissions in general. Um, so I look forward to sort of working through that process. Um, I did want to just recap briefly the Code Advisory Committee for anyone not aware is a 17 member group. So that is the group that we just re-swore re in 15 people. Um, their, their terms, I believe, are um, uh, three-year three terms. Three-year terms, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, so, so they were expiring now. Two members had um, opted not to renew or, or ever, everyone was, I believe, approached to see if they were interested to continue their service on the, on the committee. Two people um, elected to re retire, as it were, from the committee. Um, who are Nancy Goldenberg and Robert Wong. And at the time, the committee, at the last Code Advisory Committee meeting, the committee expressed their gratitude for uh, the service of those two members. So I wanted to make mention of that here. Um, 
and otherwise. Uh, so that groups, their purview um, generally, I'm just going to read from the website just really to get everybody on the same page if we're not familiar with that. The Code Advisory Committee consists of 17 members who are qualified by training and experience to deliberate and make recommendations on matters pertaining to the development and improvement of the current, uh, sorry, the content of the building code, mechanical code, electrical code, plumbing, and green building code, and housing code. Um, so th they're discussing issues along those lines, and I think a couple meetings ago I had requested an update um, about what that group is doing that will be presented here. So I think that's in process, and we'll do that at some point. Um, I've been attending those meetings as regularly as possible just to sort of improve the link between our group and their group. Um, and so is, uh, so is President Beto also. Um, anyway, so th that's the update from that. That nomination subcommittee, um, Commissioner Tam, do you have anything to add or, or Sonia? No, I'm good. I think you, uh, you touched on everything. Okay. Thank you. And I, thank and you, I Commissioner. Thank you. I think Commissioner if Summer. I, if I could add to that, uh, Madam Secretary, I want to thank Commissioner Summer for her um, thorough update. Also, thank the um, CAC for their service. Um, committing to another three years is not a short time span. Um, they work. The work that they do is pro bono. So, um, meeting on a monthly basis to talk about life safety issues um, is something that. I've attended along with uh, Commissioner Summer, and it's been helpful to understand how they deliberate over uh, certain code issues, um, especially policy issues that affect the code issues, so that we come back to the commission um, better informed about some of these um, bulletins or information that comes across our desk. Thank you. Thank you um, both, and I just wanted to add as well, um, I believe Commissioner Summer may have mentioned it, but there will be an announcement um, coming out uh, within the next month um, for the, any outstanding vacancies on the Code Advisory Committee and also the Board of Examiners, so if you can look out for those. And um, again, the, the thank you for the service for uh, Ms. Goldenberg and Mr. Wong, and they will be um, receiving certificates appreciation from the department and the commission as well for their many years of service thank you so is there any public comment on these items 6a or b um, there is a, a, a hand raised right now okay okay no longer hand raised thank you <laughs> so we're now on to item 7 update regarding information sheet eg02 Emergency escape and rescue openings to yard for existing or new building of R3 occupancies. Good morning, uh, President Beto, members of the commission. This is Neville Pereira. I'm uh, filling in for Michelle Yu, who is uh, not not available today. As a quick in introduction to this uh, agenda item, the EGO2 is uh, the numerical reference to an information sheet that um, the Department of Building Inspection puts out for the public. 
It has to do with the uh, using emergency escape and rescue openings uh, that open up into the rear yard of uh, residential buildings that don't have immediate access to the public way. The code requires that if you exit out of a uh, an emergency egress opening, uh, emergency egress and rescue opening, that you need um, access to the public way um, directly. Uh, to reiterate, and around at around uh, October 2021, the state fire marshal um, and our local fire prevention. Um, agency uh, retracted this information sheet based on the state fire marshal's um, interpretation that basically uh, under, uh, rendered the decision that you need to provide rescuability to these openings. And so if you don't, if the fire department or emergency rescue doesn't have access to the rear yard, therefore you don't have rescuability to, uh, to these openings. So they retracted the uh, information sheet and currently, um, the interim information sheet um, reviews each one on a case-by-case -case basis rather than providing a prescriptive, um, uh, prescriptive option to the design professional. So um, we've been working, we have been working with the, uh, the fire department hand-in-hand, -hand, um, as well as the American Institute of Architects, a local chapter, to come up with uh, options that, that can prescriptively let this body of work go forward. And uh, we have come up with about four options that we can prescriptively uh, get behind. And most recently, as, as is referenced in uh, April BIC meeting, um, uh, the recommendation was to go to back to the planning department and have them be co-signers on this document so that they can um, uh, get behind the prescriptive uh, options that we provide. We have uh, been working with the planning department for uh, a couple of months now to, to get that decision. Uh, if you can uh, appreciate that, if we are allowing stairs and, and balconies to project into rear yards or uh, potentially um, allow people to, to look into people's rear yards and that kind of stuff. These types of um, modifications to buildings require a um, some sort of uh, discretionary approval from the planning department. Sometimes a variance is required, which, which ordinarily is a, is a lengthy process. Um, because this is uh, the majority of our type of work, uh, residential additions and, and, and modifications to uh, bedrooms that exit into the rear, uh, prop, uh, the rear yard, we wanted a more prescriptive and more fluid um, process for the applicant. We've been pursuing a zoning administrator's uh, interpretation uh, over the last couple of uh, months. However, lately in... in um, discussions with the department, it appears that the zoning administrator's interpretation uh, process is a lengthy process and would hold up this information sheet from being processed and, 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 and being signed. We've, it's been recommended that we pursue a legislative amendment to the zoning code to allow this exception to a fire life safety issue. And so that's the way uh, we would like to proceed. 
and um, w our next steps on this is to draft a letter to the uh, deputy director of planning requesting such legislative um, amendment to their zoning uh, to their planning code and pursue that that option and that's my report Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Okay. Um, uh, we, we're going to do in-person public comment first, and then we will do uh, remote public comment. And then, I'm sorry, Deputy Director Pereira, the commissioners may have questions as well later. Okay. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Jerry Drantler. I'd like to know if the proposed solutions address ADUs. Um, with densification, uh, fire protection and escape is critical. And I have sat through the previous presentations and not heard any discussion about ADUs. Um, we're densifying the city. We need to be very deliberate and thoughtful to make sure we're not creating enormous safety problems. Thank you. there any other um, in-person public comment? Uh, then uh, that we have some hands raised remotely. Oh, good morning. It's Georgia Shudish. Uh, thank you for the chance to speak. Uh, I appreciate what Mr. Drattler just said about ADUs. And that goes along with egress for bedrooms as well when located within the excavation of the typical 25 by 114 lot, whether they're below a garage or behind the garage, which is often the case in a lot of these remodels and could be true for ADUs too, where the first floor is just is above, that was above the garage that was the living space just becomes a living space of kitchen and a living room and all the bedrooms are behind the garage relegated there, or even below the garage. And so this is the egress problem. So um, I'm familiar with a particular project that right across the street from me where they went subterranean below the garage and the bedrooms egress is in the light well and need a ladder to get out of the light well to try to walk the way into the backyard. But all of these with the excavations, whether they're set into the hill or or uh, below the garage or in the hill, below grade, below the street grade, have a problem. And this is the, basically the trend, and whether it's going to be ADUs or just remodels with making six-bedroom homes or whatever, or making two or three units, it's a problem uh, that I think has to really be examined closely because that's the trend I see, and um, it's a, I think it's a real problem going forward, and I hope that when you deal with your zoning code change, that that's really looked at. Um, I guess that's it, because when I look at some of those pictures I've sent, and I see those stairways going down into basically cement pits, pits I think about those firemen up in Glen Canyon back in the 80s or 90s, and, you know, and I just think of the people living there. So thanks a lot, and I look forward to seeing this be pursued by everyone. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. There's one more caller. Thank you, Sonia. Commissioners, uh, one, on this matter, I, I, sorry, Sonia, can you hear me? 
uh, can hear you now. And what's, what's your name, caller? Sorry, Sonia. It's John Cantor. Commissioners, I couldn't agree with uh, Mr. Drattler and Ms. Shudish on this matter more regarding life safety, but that's not what my public comment is about. Um, I'm respectfully asking that the president allow for general public comment as I was not able to get unmuted in a um, fashionable time to make public comment, which I think is important to other public comments that were made today. Maybe after this matter, if the chair would so entertain, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, is it okay, President Vito, that they can make general public comment because uh, we saw a person earlier, but we're not unable to unmute them? That's fine. Okay. Uh, you can go ahead, sir. Thank you, Sonia. Commissioners, first, I'd like to apologize that the Bix time is needlessly wasted by one individual's personal vendetta against respected local small business people. We all know individuals and businesses are struggling as we exit the pandemic. We are no different. Our neighbor, Mr. Drattler, would have you believe he is concerned about DBI enforcement of building codes with an even hand, and he is only interested in process. What he fails to mention is that neighbors who are friends of his on the same block as us re repeatedly perform work without permit, work beyond the scope of a valid permit, and work that is not permitted in the San Francisco Building Code. As his complaints so famously state, I have photos. This commission never hears about these issues and no complaints are filed with DBI. One must ask, with a neighbor so dedicated to the Building Inspection Commission and DBI, why are these individuals and their projects not also on his radar screen? The answer seems quite obvious. He is only interested in enforcement against those with which he disagrees. Over the past several years, our neighbor has filed 20 complaints against us, the vast majority being closed without merit. Just last week, one of his complaints wasted countless hours of at least eight city employees. It is most unfortunate that hardworking individuals, property owners, and businesses are subject to such an abuse of process. I respectfully request this commission consider creating a vehicle where individual complaints can be independently closed and duly noted in the complaint tracking system. Furthermore, DBI should be aware of who these serial abusers are and should maintain a list so complaints they file can be given further scrutiny. Commissioners, thank you for allowing the comments. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Is there any other comments? Okay, that's the end of uh, public comment. Any commissioners uh, discussion uh, regarding the agenda item seven? Are we opening it now to the commissioners? Is that? Yes. Okay. Um, I'd like to open it, open this up to my fellow commissioners. Do we have any questions of, of Deputy Director Neville Per? I have uh, Vice President. Hang on. Uh, Hold um, on. Make I, sure to, to, to speak into your mic too as well. I just have one question on page three. <clears throat> So you talked about the process for the zoning administrator interpretation versus um, changing the zoning code. I just want to be clear: Are we? Are you propose? Is the planning department proposing to change the zoning code? 
to accommodate these prescriptive these four alternative prescriptive measures? Is that what I'm hearing? Um, President Beto, the, the the recommendation is that we go that route. They they haven't agreed to that yet, but uh, the recommendation for expediency is to go that route. What is the process? I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this. Did they, they, did they give you a timeline of the, I presume that the, the change of the zoning code is better just because that's, it's memorialized. Okay, so let's not go into that. Um, I don't, you didn't talk too much about page four on the alternate three and alternate four. Those are highlighted. I mean, could you l go through in brief what the four alternates are that you're speaking to? Forgive me. Let me let me get a copy of that. I don't have that in front of me. So only two are highlighted here: alternate three and alternate four. But could you just go through all four of them in brief? Sure. I'll, I'll do this from from memory. Um, so the. Alternate one is to allow, allow direct access uh, through the building from the street uh, to the rear yard. Direct access uh, allowing a, a 20 foot long wooden ladder that the fire department regularly uses for rescue. Um, this is usually a straight shot. Um, however, the fire department has remained um, relatively accommodating to two options to be able to go through uh, rooms down rooms uh, behind the garage and so on and so forth. Option number two, as far as I remember, is to uh, to allow access to the rear, I mean, uh, from the rear bedroom uh, escape and rescue window up to the roof to be able to um, go up and, uh, onto roofs that are of uh, are less than a, a certain uh, slope to allow the, um, not only fire rescue to to land on the roof from the front uh, and to make their way to the back and down to the, to the, the rescue openings to be able to facilitate a rescue. Uh, furthermore, um, I believe option three is to allow um, balconies and, and, and uh, vertical access, ladder access, not ladder access, but, but steps down to the rear yard um, where the rear yard is 25 feet and more. Um, in depth to allow uh, the occupants to be able to get to uh, an area of refuge to be able to um, um, essentially escape the fire and 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 uh, and await rescue from that point. I apologize, President Beto. I don't know about um, option four. Uh, the options were presented at the 420 meeting as item number seven. Mm -hmm. uh, possible to pull those up it was item number seven on, at the 420 meeting okay uh, we we can get them to you but we we don't have an item we, we're not able to pull it up right now well uh, what I'm looking for so thank you for that Commissioner Newman what I'm looking for are the updates so we didn't get like a redrafted bulletin or information sheet I'm assuming that that's been done or has that not been done I'm just curious Correct. That draft has been done, and we did uh, we did present at an earlier meeting. Yeah. I, I, I did not um, bring that here to, to. So the thing that's germane about this agenda item is just the change to the zoning code. Is that what that's it correct. is? Okay. That's correct. So is that has that draft changed at all? No, it hasn't. Oh, it hasn't changed. Okay, no. that's fine. So 
sorry. It, it, the second page made it appear that that's new information, but it's really not. When uh, when you talk about progress update planning exemptions on the sheet that you were given. Yeah, no, that that's correct. Um, it, it was really essentially to allow the, the, the focus here based on our April BIC meeting was to uh, have the planning department get behind this and, and to allow a uh, prescriptive and, and relatively uh, germane process in order to have that happen and to exclude these types of um, design options from variances and, and, and discretionary processes, this needs to be uh, codified. Okay. I, I think we may, we may be able to show that if the commissioners are so interested, Monique um, said she can show that. Yeah, if you have it, let's so bring it up. Show that. So that's a that's a sheet that I'm referencing when you were talking, and this is something I believe that you're working through with the planning department. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, the planning department was part of the earlier discussions with uh, the fire department and and us combined, as well as the American Institute of Architects. So nothing has changed as far as our recommendations, um, other than the the fact that as we got near the end of our final draft. Um, it was discovered that these discretionary processes would impede these types of projects from going forward. Right, right, right. I guess I'm trying to, like, some of the detail in this um, progress update, I'd have to go in and, like, look at the code section 136. Um, but I guess what I'm hearing is that what you're, the update you're providing is basically commensurate with our past discussions about getting planning behind it. That's and correct. the change of the zoning code is a positive thing because that's now gonna be codified. That's okay. correct. Yeah. And planning's re requesting a formal you know, request. No, no, I'm saying they recommended you submit a formal request to move forward with the changes to planning, is that? Um, what I'm capturing. <laughs> so, the, the, so the question um, that uh, Vice President Tam uh, just offered was that we would um, request a formal change uh, off the planning department. That's correct, uh, Vice President. Uh, we would we would uh, proceduralize this, uh, write a memo to the deputy director um, to 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 uh, obtain some sort of legislative change um, uh, to the zoning code. Well, this is very positive. How long will it take to codify this in the zoning code? I, I would not speculate on that. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> okay, I know th I, that was probably a loaded question, but I, yeah. maybe for a later time, you could we could ascertain what that might take. Certainly, okay. there is light at the end of the <laughs> <laughs> okay. sorry. All, right. All right, thank you, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan. Uh, there. Are different processes for departments to initiate a change to their codes of the yeah. planning department or the planning department, uh, if they agree with the potential changes, could seek a sponsor, um, similar to how uh, we change or look at changes to the building code. But similarly, the planning commission would have to hear it, that make findings that's necessary to make these changes to the planning code. And it's, it's our normal legislative process of introduction, 30 days, committee hearing, and then once uh, finally passed by the board, uh, mayor's uh, signature 30 days effectiveness after that so it's a minimum uh, especially with the recess two and a half to three months that's good to know um uh city attorney uh, rob kaplan so in the interim 
what what happens with this information sheet or bulletin while it's still being codified? How do, how does the building department deal with these emergency evacuation or? Uh, that's an excellent question, uh, President Beto. So what we currently have is an interim document that was issued in the de December 2021 20, timeframe, uh, whereby both the uh, the director, uh, pr um, Director Reardon and uh, Ken Kaufman, uh, Coughlin of the fire department, uh, agreed to look at each one on a case-by-case -case basis. So that still stands then? Yeah. Until, um, this, until, this, until this zoning code ch actually is memorialized okay correct and that's been working uh, okay i'll say uh, not not ideal uh because it does bog down the process and involve uh, a request for modification on on every every case um but we're, we're working through that and, and we may depending on on the direction that the planning department takes uh, for this legislative update and the time that it takes we may introduce a uh, an in another interim document document to facilitate projects in the interim as soon as we do we'll, we'll report back to this commission so the interim document is that just going to be an understanding between dbi and the planning department that perhaps you could implement these four alternatives if they i mean what would the interim document because to me like if you know that something's going to be codified and there's a there's a mutual understanding between the two departments is there a way to Incorporate that, in, you know, in the process right now until it becomes formalized. Is that is that the interim do the the next interim document that you're talking about? Yeah, I I would not go that far because I don't think you can. Uh, the planning department is, is in a position to uh, to have an interim uh, interpretation without some sort of zoning administrative inter interpretation or a codification. It would fall back on the ZAI. Okay. Yeah. So this discussion becomes circular. Okay. Yeah. City Attorney Kapla, you look like you have last. <laughs> Deputy City Attorney Rob Kapla, I think the, uh, and I may be misunderstanding the process here, but this is a, so a DBI information sheet giving options to comply with the building code requirement. Some of those alternatives that a, that a property owner may seek would require or are in, in uh, conflict with the planning code, certain provisions, and in those instances, um, they can seek a variance with the zoning administrator on a case-by-case -case basis, and that's a ver that's a, uh, uh, a time-consuming process. So the 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 actual process now, somewhere to choose one of the alternatives until there's a code change, is to seek a case-by-case -case variance from the zoning administrator if the option they choose obviously uh, conflicts, um, and that's not something the Department of Building Inspection can waive or have a policy over it if, if it conflicts with the planning code it's up to the planning department through the zoning administrator to make that determination on a case-by-case -case basis so I, I, practically it would mean most i would i would assume most applicants in the interim until there's a codification if they don't want to seek a variance would probably tr exhaust the other options that would not um, conflict with the planning code assuming they can comply thank you so I'm asking you questions that are kind of out of your purview with respect to planning. If even if you were able to 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 basically utilize those alternates while you're okay. Correct. And, and if, if I may just uh, end with uh, a response to uh, public comment, um, our the way we treat uh, accessory dwelling units and uh, new new construction alterations always remains the same. 
we do not waver from the code requirements. Uh, we don't. We do not aim to treat any any projects any differently. Um, so ADUs get treated the same way as every other every other project, whether they're the, they're the main mic needs to be fixed. Um, uh, what, yeah, whether it's the main building or, the, or an accessory dwelling unit. Thank you. Do my fellow commissioners have any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. On to agenda item eight, discussion regarding the green building code with the Department of Environment along with DBI focus presentation. Good morning, Vice President Tam and members of the commission. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my name is Barry Hooper with the San Francisco Department of the Environment. And uh, at your request, I'll give you a brief overview of the Green Building Code um, and also some of the pending changes that you'll be considering next month uh, along with the other 2022 code cycles. Could you speak into the mic, please? Sure. I feel like the sympathize with the prior speaker. <laughs> um, we go to, thank you. So the talk will go over why there's a green building code, what's required here in San Francisco briefly, um, fundamentals of how the green building code is implemented, and then uh, some of those upcoming changes. Can we go to the next slide, please? So the, a, key next slide. a key reason that San Francisco has adopted its own green building standards uh, and maintained them in advance of the state green building code is that the construction and operation of the built environment has direct impacts on both the residents and the economy <coughs> and the ecology of San Francisco. And those affect particularly the health, safety, and resilience, as well as equity in our community. A recurring point of emphasis is um, energy consumption and its contributions to climate change. But the Green Building Code does, and, and my remarks will primarily emphasize that, but the Green Building Code is a um, comprehensive vehicle to address uh, a range of issues that the operation and construction of buildings affect, including waste, uh, water consumption and uh, use, and pollution uh, prevention. Next slide, please. <coughs> the Green Building Code, uh, it's the specifically the San Francisco Green Building Code, its origins come from a task force a number of years ago uh, wherein then Mayor Gavin Newsom uh, charged a, a, the task force with um, really providing recommendations for what sort of progress we would need to make long term in terms of providing uh, equitable access to safe and healthy environments for our um, for both living and working and the key elements of the recommendations from the stakeholders remain they asked for clarity of requirements. They asked for the standards to be substantive and firm. They asked for there to be flexibility, uh, recognizing that different project types, as well as different projects within a given type, have different uh, needs and priorities, um, but still propose the code apply comprehensively and address those and, and, and allow some tailoring of um, options for compliance. Next slide, please. The code has been amended a number of times over the years. So the city's first uh, 
mandatory green building requirements apply to its own buildings, and that's been a recurring theme of uh, <coughs> modifying the environment code uh, requirements in Chapter 7, dictate requirements for uh, municipal facilities, both new and existing, and typically concepts are adopted and applied and tested in municipal buildings in advance of their um, introduction uh, to the broader public. In 2009, uh, the city adopted this <coughs> uh, San Francisco Building Code, Chapter 13C, and that was the first set of green building requirements that applied to all new construction as well as most major alterations. And I'll talk about, so I'll define those terms now. So new construction is relatively straightforward. Major alterations was defined at the time in the context of that code as being a project of sufficient scope that requirements akin to or equivalent to new construction would make sense. And so specifically that means the project has a minimum project area of 25,000 square feet, a substantial modification to mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, or plumbing systems, excuse me, and that it modify, uh, substantially modify the structural systems in the building. Uh, the state of California uh, made a lot of progress in the same direction in 2011 by adopting the California Green Building Code, <coughs> or um, CalGreen, that's Title 24, Part 11. And so from that point forward, San Francisco was amending the state's Green Building Code rather than a, uh, maintaining an independent Green Building Code of its Green Building Ordinance of its own. The code is amended periodically, so a couple of highlights are uh, included on this slide. In 2016, the city uh, in, adopted requirements that in new construction, uh, the majority of newly constructed buildings in most uses uh, would need to install either PV or a living roof. Uh, and really that was based on a, an ethic of ensuring that the roof be put to functional use uh, for the betterment of both the environment and citizens. In 2017, the city adopted requirements to advance um, and ensure uh, newly constructed buildings, as well as major alterations, were ready for adoption of electric vehicle infrastructure over time. In 2020, the city began to require newly constructed buildings or adopted an ordinance that required, as of uh, <coughs> June 2021, newly constructed buildings to be built all electric, so not to include gas-consuming uh, systems. Next slide. And so when I use that term, the San Francisco Green Building Code, that's similar to the other uh, code amendments in San Francisco, that's the combination of the state codes, uh, specifically Title 24, Part 11, and local amendments, and those together comprise the San Francisco Green Building Code. Next slide, please. So effectively, the code is a, uh, Green Building Code is a vehicle for advancing environmental policy for the built environment that's led by and implemented by the Department of Building Inspection but the reason I'm here speaking with you today is it's party, part of a long-running partnership with the Department of Environment where we work directly together on uh, both the development of the code itself and, and obtaining stakeholder input about what makes sense, what is safe, and um, <clears throat> generally, and, and most amendments also, are, of course, consider cost very seriously. Um, and then we also collaborate in its implementation through to regulation and to examining impacts, as well as um, understanding where there, an issue, the unexpected issue may arise. And so um, in that context, it's important to think of the Green Building Code as a tool for advancing longer term public safety and public health, as well as contributing to meeting uh, the city's climate goals, um, that those in turn benefit longer term health and safety. And so 
the code itself has a fair amount of detail, but just some highlights are the code regularly advances energy efficiency requirements, so you might have heard the term reach codes, um, that originally referred to energy efficiency requirements stricter than the state energy code. Uh, it has sometimes been used in a little bit broader sense, but it does always include at least that, that one um, uh, sense. Um, San Francisco is one of three communities in California that's adopted energy efficiency standards stricter than the state energy code in every code cycle since 2008. Um, the um, city, as I mentioned, requires all electric new construction, requires roofs to be put for, for, to productive use. Um, it, we have advanced water efficiency requirements through the Green Building Code, although currently the state code has, has substantially caught up, and so they're equivalent um, in general. The, we have strict, continue to have stricter requirements for electric vehicle charging, which I'll outline in a moment. And it's also been a vehicle for advancing zero waste, both in the operation of buildings as well as their construction and the um, disposition of materials at the end of the building's life or the life of a portion of a building. So those regulations that advance those issues are summarized in um, the Green Building Regulations in uh, Administrative Bulletin 93. And so it both provides a vehicle for the department and applicants to have a, a reference to the range of requirements that apply uh, from the Green Building Code itself, as well as San Francisco has adopted a number of requirements in the health code and other codes that are directly relevant. Uh, and so it just provides a, a reference to those uh, so that the applicant can have context, uh, definitely at the outset of the project, as well as through its life cycle. <clears throat> and I'll conclude, if we can go to the, uh, or one more slide, please, um, with just talking. Um, I'm happy to answer questions as well as to uh, prepare more detailed information about progress, because uh, I know that was a question. But keeping it brief today, I'm just going to highlight one metric. And that's that if we look at the operation of buildings, all buildings citywide in San Francisco, and we compare 30 years ago to today, or the latest available data that's public is the 2019 um, uh, greenhouse gas emission inventory the operation of the built environment yields about half as much emissions, uh, half as much carbon emissions result from operating all buildings citywide today as they did 30 years ago. And that's um, substantially, a substantial contributor to that has been improvements in efficiency advanced by, of course, the underlying technology, but also the enforcement of energy standards by uh, the Department of Building Inspection, and <coughs> um, as well as uh, increasing the portion of our electric supply that's provided via the grid, as well as on our rooftops, but primarily via the grid, that's generated from a zero emission or renewable resources. So with that, I'll conclude, oh, sorry, I'll give you a couple more slides, pardon me. Um, what's changing in the upcoming code, if you go to the next slide, please. Um, their major themes are in the, the um, in the green building code itself, the major area of change is that the state has rewritten its electric vehicle charging requirements. If you could, sorry, I do have, oh great. So the, um, those requirements, in a nutshell, they substantially advance many of the ideas that were first adopted here. Uh, and I'll talk about a, one or two of those. Um, the energy code it's, is also advancing, so the state is beginning to regulate rooftops in essentially all new construction. Uh, each of the most all, re all resi new residential construction as well as the most prominent types and most common types of non-residential construction. Um, 
And then the state is also moving toward better support for electrification, both in new construction and in alterations of existing buildings. Key elements of that include a prescriptive requirement that at least one system be a heat pump in uh, any newly constructed building, as well as improving the um, communication in the code via the state has um, metrics that are commonly used for performance-based compliance, so measuring how your building, how much energy your building might use compared to a similar building that prescriptively complied, and the metric is becoming, uh, they're removing um, aspects of the metric that tended to discourage electrification in the past. Go to the next slide. Um, I'll talk about a couple key terms. What does that mean for electric vehicles? Um, the uh, state green building code is adopting the term EV capable as an ex explicit definition. I want to use that term. I'm refer I'm, this is this is an informal summary. Uh, the, the specific definition is in the code, but it's a parking stall that is prepared to accommodate installation of an EV charger in the future. So in, that's in terms of the physical space and access to electrical infrastructure. An EV-ready parking space has a full live, potentially live circuit and a receptacle, so all safety measures in place, and the only thing that differentiates that from a space with an EV charger is the EV charger itself. And then any, the last stage is uh, where an EV charger is installed. Next slide, please. And so this table summarizes how those uh, requirements have evolved. And you can see um, that for uh, this in, and I'm framed this uh, in the context of the 2022 uh, code. So this, the Calgreen 2022 does differentiate between new multifamily less than 20 units and greater than 20 units. And the main difference is you can see on the, the fifth row of this table that uh, the state is beginning to require a limited number of EV chargers to actually be installed. Um, what San Francisco has required for a number of years has been to ensure that the electric service capacity is sufficient for simultaneous level two charging at 20% of parking spaces. And what that means, what that translates to is a, a great deal of flexibility if you add a appropriate and safe load management system to share that level of capacity for charging vehicles at any number of spaces up to the entire building, up to all installed off-street parking spaces. Um, the, and then we've had similar requirements for non-residential. Um, because what's before you is a carry forward, so it's simply harmonizing uh, whatever the changes are to the state state's codes with what was in place here, then since the state has enacted a few things that are stricter than what we had in place before, we're actually updating to, um, to adopt those, those state requirements. Happy to answer questions in detail about that, but it's, it, it's, it's a, the state's going a long way to preparing for adaptability for electric vehicles in the future, as well as to prepare for the, uh, provide recharging now uh, in newly constructed buildings. Next slide. A big difference is in terms of alterations. So the new thing is the state is beginning to require um, some EV infrastructure for multifamily alterations. And the state, however, has not instituted those requirements for non-residential. Next. Um, oh, you already did it. Thank you. Um, and so that's catching up with San Francisco. So in San Francisco, we have had requirements for major alterations. Uh, and that's a, that is a narrower trigger. Uh, since 2017. Um, next slide. <clears throat> in 
in terms of regulating rooftops, the state is beginning to prescriptively require PV on all new residential and most new non-residential construction. It does, those rules do consider shading as well as shading from the building itself and, uh, and equipment on it as well as um, other existing structures in the area or features of the area. Um, they do supersede local requirements. Um, what this is in the green building code here is to explicitly um, continue to allow uh, living roof as a allowed use of rooftops when that living roof is constructed for compliance with the stormwater management ordinance. And that is consistent with the state's um, intent with the uh, energy standards. And we've discussed that with Energy Commission staff. And it's just a clarification that the, another way to put it is the rules have changed quite a bit, but the practical outcome is very, very similar to what it was before because the state is entering this particular space. And so just to briefly summarize last slide, um, the states moved to better support the intent of our requirements for electric vehicle charging. It's begun to uh, require some installation of the actual chargers themselves. <clears throat> the net effect will improve access to electric vehicle charging over time. Um, and does include some provisions to um, that consider uh, the balance between electric service size and cost. Uh, and the energy standards are moving to better support electrification, particularly in new construction, but also existing buildings. So thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. Um, is there any public comment on, on this item? Um, seeing none, uh, Commissioner discussion? I'd like to, oh, Commissioner Epler? Um, sure, just a couple quick questions. One, uh, as we look at the uh, pie charts for the uh, carbon emissions from San Francisco buildings, um, you note that the, the largest amount of the reduction is from the reduction in uh, CO2 emissions from electricity and that most of that is from generation. Uh, is that correct? Uh, this slide is summarizing several factors at once. So yeah. the reduction in emissions from electricity consumption, sorry, from electricity generation, proportionally, or, or absolutely, you're, you're correct. Yeah. However, we just use less electricity than we would otherwise if we didn't have the efficiency standards, and that's yeah. the primary area that the, the building department influences. Yeah. Um, and as a quick side note, we literally have had um, flat or slightly reduced gross energy consumption citywide as the built environment, as we have more larger population, larger economy, larger building stock. So efficiency definitely is contributing to that. So we have, so we have more users and we're using about half the amount of uh, CO2 to power them through, through various ways. Um, how much of that reduction, and I'm, I'm focusing mainly on electricity because it's the key driver there, it's the, the most of the reduction, how much of that is in efficiency driven by uh, building code? like as, as a fraction of the overall uh, um, reduction? That's uh, a great question and a fairly abstract to directly answer. Um, so I'm sorry, I don't have a, a, a great answer for That's you. That's fine. Um, and I do note that um, we, despite all this, we also have a small reduction in the amount of CO2 from natural gas uses. Um, what drives that and is there any plan to help migrate uh, existing natural gas users to electric uses, say, for like cooking or heating? Sure. Um, the, so the reduction to date 
does not reflect electrification. I'll just highlight that because because that's a relatively new discussion and does take a lot of takes a considerable amount of time to both send the public policy signal and for that to be um, accepted, as well as for pra practices and preferences that are voluntary to change. And so we're in the midst of that uh, change of both mandatory electrification and new construction and currently voluntary uh, electrification in existing buildings. So the reduction in gas use is a function. Uh, that, that would be evidence of the effect of efficiency. Um, small example, moder moderate examples of that would be a few years ago, the um, uh, Bay Area Air Quality Management District has instituted uh, requirements to reduce NOx emissions from existing boilers that required most large boilers uh, uh, in most conditions that had any substantial use to be upgraded to meet those emission standards. In the majority of cases, that means a replacement, and a replacement of a particularly older boiler with newer one would generally yield significant reduction to serve the same function. Um, to your question about better supporting or advancing electrification, though, particularly in existing buildings, um, that is most of the content of the uh, Climate Action Plan's building operations chapter. Uh, and uh, happy to, to summarize that, but it, it goes into a fair amount of detail, including timelines for um, expected policy actions, and uh, it is something that I would expect moving forward. Then uh, one question on electric vehicles. Um, you know, the code currently deals with uh, multifamily significantly, and also, uh, you know, the parking spaces they're in. There's a large number of cars that do not have indoor parking. Um, has there been any thought about how we can change the building code to better incentivize external um, installation of uh, chargers, for example, like in those places where, you know, instead of being interior facing, they'd be exterior facing. And Did you have a comment? Oh, I, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kapla, it's actually um, an ordinance that's before it just passed out of committee. It's the Electric Vehicle Charging Location Ordinance to set up or facilitate retail charging stations to take the place of gas stations and other spots. Um, but in terms of adding just equipment or a charger to a building, that's actually regulated by state code. Um, and it, it makes it a uh, as close to an administrative and ministerial process as possible. And we have special codes within our building code, within DVI's building code, not within the green building code, to make that an extremely fast process to add pumps to any existing property or use. Got it. Thank you. Commissioner Tude. Thank you so much for your presentation. Is that better? Um, I am uh, um, delighted to hear about the new uh, that the, the 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 new rules coming forward will focus on the um, the existing building stock. Um, I that was the heart of my question. Um, I think in many of the questions about uh, the, from the presentation we heard several months ago um, from community members was, you know, how can we make this easier? How can we make this more efficient? And, um, and is there collaboration or code changes and uh, that, are, that would be required? Or is it just like making the process easier and, uh, you know, helping members of the public are there incentive programs? So can you speak a little bit? I have a couple other questions, but this is, I think, you know, I think a big one. Like, can you speak to some of, I know you can't speak to, to, um, to everything that's gonna happen, but can you kind of, Give us an idea of what you know. Where is this? Where's what? What can we expect from that that plan moving forward? Around, are you, is it 
around incentivizing? Is it around education? Are there examples um, for uh, for the exist for existing housing stock? It's a, a fantastic question. Um, yes, <laughs> uh, the um, the the climate action plan, uh, particularly the building operations chapter, is the um, product of a multi-year public engagement process, uh, particularly for residential stock centering equity and just transition. And in that context, um, it does reflect a substantial input from the, uh, the broader community, as including building ownership and tenants. Um, for uh, what types of public education, uh, workforce development, incentives, and requirements are necessary, and so we're working on each of those. Mm -hmm. um, the, and, and they were, as a side note, it, it was covered on uh, briefly on, on Monday at the uh, Board of Supervisors Land Use Committee did, did discuss the, uh, of their hearing on the building operations chapter. Um, a theme of that is recognizing that for existing buildings, one, it, we need to be opportunistic and realistic and uh, acknowledge that time is, also, is both um, urgency is important and the expense of an upgrade it can be significant and so the opportunity where there is the lowest marginal cost of making the changes when the equipment is going to be replaced anyway so at a, a remodel substantial alteration or equipment replacement and so there are um, those themes are recognized in the climate action plan that we should be crafting legislation that is practical um, but um, captures those opportunities for, for advancing electrification. Um, the San Francisco is a city and a county, so is it with a county hat on, if you will, we are a participant in the Bay Area Regional Energy Network, mm -hmm. and that is um, one of the primary uh, sources of uh, financial incentives for supporting efficiency and electrification in existing uh, residential buildings. So as an example, for a single family home, around uh, $6,000 per unit is currently available for the set of um, measures that support an upgrade. Um, I'll note that also Clean Power SF is contributing to that as well, and the, the, the incentives layer together. Clean, the city's, um, excuse me, SFPC's Clean Power SF program is providing um, about $1,000 incentive directly to the contractor for heat pump water heater installation to make it a better business proposition for them and to help them encourage their clients to consider that technology uh, to gain better experience in its installation. Thank you. Um, and I, I, where would someone who wanted to do this, where would they go to find out about the the, um, the financial incentive program that you just described? Where, where would they yeah, start? What's a good th starting place? Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the easiest place would be to go to just uh, use your favorite search engine to look for Bayren Residential, Bayren is B-A-Y-R-E-N. Um, if at any time you forget that, uh, there's also a statewide website called theswitchison.org, and that uh, does summarize um, incentives available statewide. Um, it just, Bayren can, it'll end up pointing you to Bayren. <laughs> so okay, perfect. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and then, thank you to my fellow commissioners. I do just, are, are you contemplating um, in the, uh, in, is gray water and, or water recycling being contemplated? Um, and then also is, so much of our housing stock relies on 
open windows for ventilation, which is great most of the time, but during when we have two or three weeks, you know, of, you know, of, uh, of, you know, air that's being affected by wild wildfires that, um, becomes very difficult. Uh, and, uh, particularly I've heard complaints from people in the SRO community who like they're some of their, like, uh, in the common areas or in the air wells, like the, those windows don't even go up and down anymore. Is there any contemplation around indoor air quality um, and changes uh, for for air? Um, so it's gray water, uh, kind of the, I don't know how you call open window ventilation system. And then um, finally, on electric bikes. Um, I think of one of the, the biggest disincentives for people who maybe on the margins of being able to afford a uh, an electric bike is how often they are stolen. And if there are contemplations in existing buildings for um, electric bike um, parking and other kinds of uh, security that would um, incentivize or make you know people who have electric bikes even more comfortable using them um, on a daily basis. Um, I'll, I'll try to catch all this. So, so the, the, um, for electric bicycles, the regulations for the most part have come via the planning department. Um, the, to the point of ensuring occupants of existing buildings have bicycle parking, um, the city does have on the books a um, bicycle parking and existing uh, buildings ordinance that primarily applies to workplaces though um, and does ensure that there's secure bicycle parking at, at workplaces over a certain size. Um, the, so I, I wouldn't expect the building code to go into more detail about that other than, uh, I mean, the, the key advantage of electric bicycles tends to be that they have a low electricity uh, draw. And so um, I'm not aware of that being a, the failure to wire for them being a barrier to their adoption. Um, could you, so you mentioned air quality. Um, and gray water, yeah. Uh, for air quality, <laughs> particularly, I, I personally expect that Voluntary adoption of um, uh, heat pumps is, and, and potentially also when it is appropriate, um, mandatory or incentive directly incentive supported adoption of heat pumps um, will continue to accelerate uh, if we continue to have the you know, air quality events that we've experienced uh, a number of times in recent years, and we should have every reason to expect this year. Um, and at that time of um, making upgrades to one's home that are, if, if for the building that one owns, um, <clears throat> that are permanent, a, um, it, a, a good strategy is to, of course, provide for filtration of out, outside air and to look, consider, um, uh, despite the relative mildness of our climate, air conditioning will become more common and when you're replacing your heating system or upgrading specifically to provide filtered air, those are good times to consider whether a, a heat pump for space conditioning is, is uh, the best solution. Um, and then for gray water, um, you know, water is primarily, water policy is primarily advanced by the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Um, they, we do have a, a non-potable water reuse ordinance for large buildings and it's currently proposed for you could help me, Rob, but, but is, is either proposed for amendment or has been amended to apply to smaller 
uh, newly constructed buildings, I think down to 100,000 square feet. Um, for individual homes, that's, there are uh, informational resources are available, um, but it's a matter of significant care for public health as well as the, the plumbing department uh, because um, you know, one occupant of a home may be very proficient at operating such a system and the next uh, may not. And so there, there is a fair amount of scrutiny that goes into adopting uh, individual residential systems. Uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Cavill, I, I think uh, uh, Barry has a better, <laughs> better uh, sense of this, but at least in terms of our uh, purple water, gray water system recycling, there is complicated even for large buildings with the California Plumbing Code. So there are, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the areas where we have some um, uh, uh, frustrations with the state codes and hopefully, I haven't seen if Cal the 2022 Plumbing Code will be better for that, but. Uh, but there is, within the city, we do have um, uh, gray water recycling provisions for those certain buildings, but certainly small residential is, is very hard. Is there any other questions from fellow commissioners? I wanna thank you for your presentation. I have questions, but I think I'm gonna reserve them for our in-house engineers. <laughs> this is a code that spans electrical, plumbing, and mechanical, and it's not an easy code to decipher, and um, you've uh, raised some points. I would also suggest to my fellow commissioners to look, while you were talking, I was looking at the AB 93, just to understand even one of the questions I have about defining what a ma major renovation, you know, went into a little bit further detail to just basically understand how objective or subjective that that um, uh, evaluation of what you consider a major renovation and that was outlined a little bit more so I would encourage my fellow commissioners to look at that bulletin is there another bulletin or other information sheet you would advise us to look at because that provides a pretty good summary for the different types of um, construction is there another information sheet you'd like to to refer us to that that is a principal one okay yeah. but you can I think you We'll all be able to see from that how much this spans a lot of different disciplines. So I want to thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Okay, no, no public comment. Okay, item nine, update on the soft story compliance rates. afternoon commissioners uh, Joe Duffy deputy director of inspection services um, I'd like to give you an update today on our mandatory soft story uh, retrofit program we've um, we last presented on this I believe in February uh, earlier this year and I just want to give you a sort of a progress report on our enforcement efforts um, in the last few months the um, I'll, I'll just go over the program briefly the uh, mandatory soft story uh, retrofit program was created by ordinance in 2013. It applies to the uh, wood frame buildings of three or more stories or two stories over a basement or underfloor area that have any portion extending above the grade, similar to the building in the, in the slide, um, containing five or more uh, residential dwelling units where the permit to construct was applied for prior to January the 1st, 1978, and where the building has not yet seismic been seismically strengthened. Next slide. So the the uh, buildings uh, got split into four compliance tiers. 
And there was some, there was a date for the submittal of the permit application. Then there was the date for the, com the completion of the work and the issuance. And as you can see from the slide, there were, there, um, the dates were 2017, 18, 19. The last date there of 2020, that's actually incorrect. It's, that got extended to 9, 15, 2021. And that was due to the uh, pandemic. And at the time, you know, obviously people, uh, you know, there was, there, was, there was just no way to get the work done. So, you know, with, with people at home and, and there was a shutdown in construction, all sorts of things that we're still dealing with. Uh, not as much, but we're still dealing with some of them. So, um, the, uh, the, the, I'd like to, sp to speak about the compliance on the tiers. Um, so, as you can see, there are uh, tier, tier one, there was only seven buildings in, in tier one. Those, so, we're 100% on that one. We have 91% compliance in tier two. We're at 89% uh, in tier three. And in tier four, we're, we're at um, 75%. Uh, 95 properties have had an order of abatement issued for the soft story. Um, the tier one there has two properties. Um, I think what that means is that they've probably completed the work, signed it off, but have not cleared the order of abatement yet. Four properties in tier two, 73 properties in tier four, and 16 properties in, in uh, tier, 73 in tier three, and 16 properties in tier four. We are, we have ramped up our enforcement uh, efforts in 2022. Um, we're now holding approximately, uh, scheduling 20 cases a month for uh, uh, director's hearings. We also have hired an additional building inspector um, and, and assigned uh, that inspector to this program for enforcement because we find that um, with, with scheduling the hearings and putting owners on notice and, and letting them know that this is an important issue, they're, they do want to avoid the order of abatement. It will be an encouragement to uh, get the work done. Um, it, it's very similar to the uh, UMB program, the, the uh, unreinforced masonry building program that was probably 15, 20 years ago now. We did find that um, getting these programs completed to 100% compliance can take a while. And as you can see, the date has passed. And um, as I say, we are, we are, we are finding that, um, you know, most people have their permits uh, filed and issued one of the things that I'm finding is that a lot of people tied the soft story work into an ADU project. So they didn't want to do the seismic work and then do the ADU. You want to do them together. So while waiting maybe for an ADU project or on just the timing of that, they are going to do the soft story and that project at the one time. Um, but um, we are, as I say, uh, continuing to pursue our enforcement. Um, and uh, I'm available for any questions on, on this uh, topic. Can we quickly define the tiers? Oh, you know, I got asked that the last time and I didn't have the answer, but I do have it today. <laughs> I think it was Mr. Repler that asked me that. So, um, so yeah, of course, no problem. The tier one buildings are buildings that contain a group A, E, R21, R3, or R4 occupancy on any story. So that would be an assembly, occupancy, and educational one and some of the residential occupancies. The tier two buildings were containing 15 or more dwelling units except for buildings 
assigned to Tier 1 or Tier 4. Tier 3 buildings were buildings not falling within the definition of another tier. And then the Tier 4 buildings were buildings that contain a Group B or M occupancy, that's an office, or a, a retail occupancy on the first story or in a basement of an underfloor area, that is any portion extending above grade, and buildings that are not mapped in liquefaction zones except for buildings assigned to Tier 1. So those are the four different types of, uh, that's the way it got tiered uh, per the ordinance. Thank you. Any other comments from any other commissioners? No. Wonderful. I oh, do. Oh, yeah, sorry. sorry. Oh, yeah, I did. Sorry, I don't have my screen. That's all right. Um, so uh, so we, we still have a significant backlog uh, for, for abatement, whether it's uh, through an order thereof or through a director's hearing or through uh, their compliance with the law. Um, first of all, with respect to the cases that are going to director's hearings, how are they um, being selected? Are they kind of like the first to uh, be in uh, noncompliance first up for a hearing, or how are you working through that log? Um, that's a very good question, uh, Commissioner Rappler. I don't have it. I believe they're just coming, they're, they're working through the tiers um, because the deadlines were dictated by the dates, so those ones further away from the tier ones, tier two, tier three, tier four. So that that's the way they're being done, I believe. Sure. And we have, you know, we have like a few different ways that we're trying to get it to compliance. We have the director's hearings, and there's 20 months of those. We have, you know, hopefully the enforcement spurring people to hurry up and get into compliance, and then we have a second training inspector. You know, I mean, I could divide the, the total number out of compliance by 20 and get a number, but when, with all of these three features, would you expect that we have worked through this backlog and have something, you know, in the 90% compliance across all tiers, something that's close to actually having this done? Um, so what you're, talk what, you're, what you're asking me there is compliance as in certificate of final completion, work all completed? Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I, personally, I think it's going to be another few years. I would have to say that, you know. I mean, um, like we, we did, there was a, an increase in Tier 3 since February of about 25 buildings. Now, um, which, you know, does, seems low, but it, it's, it's actually not bad uh, considering what's going on at the minute with, you know, there's, things are still in the, in the industry starting to go again. I think building owners have a lot of empty buildings. There's a lot of, I know I'm hearing it from landlords, particularly when, when, we're, when we're scheduling a hearing, you will get a continuance request um, based on the hardship. So we are, we are sympathetic to that. At the same time, we do know that we have to move ahead with enforcement and put the orders of abatements on the buildings. But I, again, I, I, would, I would refer to the UMB program, any of these mandatory programs, getting them finished out, it, you know, it, it does take uh, an effort and longer. And I, you know, um, I, no one wants to have an order of abatement on the property. And at some point, you know, when those, there may be some discussions with the city attorney maybe on what we're going to do next or if, if there's, you know, but at this point, we're just, we're keep scheduling the hearings. I, you know, and I feel as if with the permits, the number of permits that are issued, that would tell you that people are, you know, they are going to get the work done. Yeah. So, you know, we're hopeful, but I think it's, I think we're definitely talking two to three years. And, and what's the usual lag between when a permit's issued and when a, a notice of completion is issued? Uh, normally, that 
that that's usually we would see a project like that probably within most maybe 12 to 18 months okay. sometimes even less than that and um, if they get going on these types of projects like they can be done in in, in uh, six months like if the valuation on a permit is under a hundred thousand dollars we expect the work to be done within 12 months that's that's the time allowed on the permit so um, depending on uh, you know how their how quick their schedule is but but certainly you wouldn't you wouldn't I'd said 12 months for the most of them is, is probably what it is. There's been a few where I've seen where um, when they tie it into the ADU project, there's some problem with the water hookup or PG&E and moving the meters as well. So there, there are delays with utilities, and we're getting that a little bit, very small percentage, but I have seen that in the last uh, few months. I've got some requests for extensions due to waiting on PG&E and stuff like that. And I, and I think that raises a good point. If when we when we come back to this, whether it's in six months or a year or whenever, it might be nice to uh, not just look at the compliance numbers, but to look at the permitting numbers because that'll give us more of a window into how the process is going. Absolutely. Yeah. No thank you. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. the You're update. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Any other? No further comments. Okay. Thank you. There um, public comment on this item. I'm seeing none. Item 10, update on launch of free plan check process. Good afternoon again, uh, Neville Pereira, Deputy Director for Permit Services, uh, reporting out on the the progress of the pre-plan check process. Yeah, the first slide. So just as a just as background, uh, we presented on this the last commission meeting, whereby we introduced a slight change to our intake process for pro, um, permits that are sorry projects that are. Uh, taken in for review. Ordinarily, we we have um, permit techs in, uh, initially review those applications and plans. Uh, we inserted the the, the plan, plan check engineers into that uh, work stream to be able to um, put the experienced uh, people in at the initial um, point of intake to be able to advise the applicants as to the best uh, process um, or best uh, path forward to review the quality of the plans um, uh, at, the, at the intake process to make sure that they were not only of, of good quality, but they were complete so that we could offer the applicant a thorough review the first time, thereby um, possibly reducing the number of subsequent reviews and, um, and expediting the process and then also to assign a, a, a tier, a level of effort, if, it, if, if you were, um, the easier proce, uh, projects that were marginally over um, the threshold of a, of a counter check would be uh, assigned a tier two, some middle, middle tier, uh, tier three projects that, that were in and about a four to eight hour time for review, and then any project that was beyond eight hours to be able to assign that a, a tier four. Um, level of effort. And so, can I get the next slide, please? 
Prior to the July implementation on June 29th, uh, we, we had a webinar uh, in, in and amongst other communications methods um, to alert the applicants and our constituents of the change in the process. It was very well attended, about 220 uh, attendees. And we, we took about 13 questions in the actual webinar itself and uh, had subsequent questions emailed to us and also meeting people uh, physically on the second floor, um, people I've never met before, but, but who attended the webinar and uh, come up to me and, and, and offer additional recommendations, uh, suggestions, and or questions about the process. In all, since the July implementation, uh, nobody I know, and it's definitely not myself, has heard anything negative about the program so far. Um, and the recording is on our website uh, if, you, if you weren't there and for people that, that want to know more about the program. Next slide, please. Okay, so um, at the time of this report presented to you, we had taken in approximately 41 projects that were, were new in, in, in through the process. About a third of those, those projects were returned back to the applicants that didn't quite meet that um, our first cut. They were either, um, uh, yeah, they, they weren't up to the, the quality we, we would expect for our initial review, or they were missing um, parts of the, the documentation. I personally had the experience of taking in a, um, a physical set of plans for re replacement of a rear stair which was a great set of plans architecturally, but had no structural as part of that. Um, so, and it was interesting because the feedback we've gotten anecdotally is, uh, is acceptance, right? Okay, we knew, we, we knew that was, we were unprepared. Okay, we'll come back another time, as opposed to, you know, hey, you know, this is, this is unfair, and so on and so forth. We've always done it this way. Um, so it, 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 it's working pretty well in the first couple of weeks. Um, and our review times is anticipated uh, in, for in around uh, 10 to 15 minutes for each project. So we're not impacting the applicant, especially those people that come in physically uh, in person. Our two checklists are, are now posted on the website. They have been uh, prior to Ju our July implementation. And uh, we're in the process of refining that. The, the, the checklists themselves are, uh, are um, fairly well thought through. We're just looking at ways to um, make our internal process of going through these checklists, implementing checkboxes, electronic means of, of you know, uh, putting, putting our comments in um, as efficiently as possible and returning it back to the applicant um, within about 24 hours of their submittal. So it's a pretty good turnaround, um, uh, non-impactful for the, uh, you know, our current process, I would say. Um, I do want to add the, the anecdote. The, the, one of the questions was, this just seems another way of, of introducing plan check corrections at an early stage of the process, and that, that's not what it is. It, it, it has really been a, a brief, uh, you know, back and forth, and um, I'd say virtually all of the, the projects, in fact, I would say all of the projects complied with the, the, uh, our comments on the, on the subsequent um, uh, submittal. So nobody has gone back and forth multiple times at this stage. Next slide, please. Uh, just a quick summary of, of the uh, 
the breakdown of the 41 projects that we took, um, most of them were level two. These are projects between one and four hours, of, uh, sorry, between two and four hours of work. So these are the projects that would anticipate an over-the-counter review, but um, are not. And so most of those, 36 of them, are at that level. And as uh, Assistant Director Gasparic uh, mentioned earlier on, um, these projects will be moving through <laughs> our system a lot quicker once we get into the rhythm of things. And then uh, two level three projects and, and four level, uh, sorry, three level four. Ordinarily, I would expect to see a, a staggered uh, or a, a diminishing number, uh, uh, you know, highest, um, highest quantity in level two, lesser in level three, and a lot less in level four. It's, it's starting to shape up that way, but there's a, there's a slight difference there. Next slide. Our next steps uh, are to identify the most type, common types of errors and publish that to, uh, to the public to let them know uh, not only do you have your checklist, but this is what we, we're experiencing in the first couple of weeks of, of the program. And then, you know, not, in, not too far in the distant future, we can anticipate just, just stop monitoring those because people should start to get familiar with the type of uh, um, screening that we're doing. We want to incorporate uh, yeah I'm, I'm trying the wording on it. we, we want to incorporate uh, uh, priority projects into this uh, this oh I'm sorry what well, this this next bullet point is we have an existing pipeline or a work in progress right that has been come into the department and that hasn't been assigned any uh, level of effort and it hasn't been assigned in, in any estimated hours or tiers. Um, so that's the process we're going through right now. It started actually last week in, in our second week of operation. We started to look at what's in our individual queues. So we got about 30 some plan checkers. Each one's looking at their individual backlogs and starting to assign hours so that eventually in about a week or so, we're gonna take those individual backlogs and move them into a general, general queue. There's a little caveat here because some people have been bird-dogging their projects and seeing them progress through individual queues, right, from far back to the middle, and then they're almost going to be assigned. And if you can imagine, there's a little bit of anxiety that they, they lose their place in line, so to speak, and they're not at the front of their individual queues. So we've made uh, contingency plans for this. So uh, plan checkers that know that there are anxious people that have been bird-dogging their, their projects, they'll continue to remain uh, in those individual queues, and we'll get those out right away. But essentially, once we move all of these to a general queue, what it'll, it'll allow is that there's, um, there's a bunch of priority projects that have, been, um, that have been in our queue for quite a while. And not only priority projects, but just, just other projects that have been assigned or arrived at, at the building station that haven't been reviewed. Those will go out right away, and people will see that movement right away. Um, and then there's, there's, uh, there's also some other projects that have been lingering as well as our recheck backlog. A recheck is a, a project that's been reviewed for the first time, sent out to the applicant, and it has come back in for re-review re to, to verify those corrections have been made. There, I refer to this uh, in, you know, in endearing terms as sludge at, in our pipeline. It's stuff that's just, uh, it's just been accumulating. It's just there. It needs to be gotten. And so we'll focus on getting that out right away 
before we start to see this, this, this queues just generally move. So we're anticipating, I'm anticipating a bunch of uh, you know, calls saying, hey, look, you, you moved me to a general queue. I haven't moved in two weeks. We're anticipating that. Um, and then they'll start to move fairly regularly. We'll, we're creating reports to be able to see how, how much uh, work we're taking out of our, our backlog, out of our queues. On a, on a weekly basis, and you should start to see um, trending reports that show uh, cyclically during the, the end of the, the, the calendar year as people start to take, take vacations and, and, uh, and time off, or at the end of a calendar year where people start to use their, uh, their, their um, time off and stuff like that. You start to see our resources drop and, and our, our, our times increase a little bit. This is all information that we didn't really have a pulse on. We didn't have a, no, uh, have a way of um, uh, showing or analyzing before. It will all start to uh, be, be shown on a, on a weekly basis, and we'll come back to this commission um, uh, to show you those trends on a, on a regular basis. That concludes my report. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there public comment on this item? Being none, commissioner discussion. Um, I'd like to start off by applauding um, Deputy Director Neville on this um, and the rest of DVI. I think that this is just, I think the last part of this that I heard where you're, you're also employing a sense of reasonableness of, you know, applicants that have been in the pipeline, that this isn't just a black and white solution that in the pre-plan pre checking process that you're also including applicants that have been pursuing their projects for quite a long time and don't want to lose their place online. Um, and I, and I identify with those people quite, quite, quite well. So I'm really pleased at the reasonable and, you know, um, approach that you've taken to this, like in a very holistic sense. So thank you. Commissioner Summer. Uh, I agree. Thank you so much. This is really cool. Um, I, I think a lot of this sounds like it'll be really helpful. I'm, I'm surprised that you've had no no pushback and people people have been amenable so far. I'm sure that will change to some extent, but um, you know, such as hopefully, obviously the overall intent is for a smoother process. Um, I was curious about two sort of minor things. Um, when when people are, you know, kicked out of intake, basically. Are, do you guys have a the, the checklist and you, you're working through it with them and you say here's where, you know, this is on the website and he, here's the couple things you're missing on this checklist. Can you can you provide those those things when you come back? Correct. Um, our so our, our initial uh, responses have been via email. We take those checklists, copy and paste them off of uh, copy uh, corrections off of those checklists and put them in an email. We want to give a more consistent. Um, response uh, from these uh, in general we we've communicated pretty well to the public that these these uh, checklists are out there obviously there's there's a bunch of people that, that ha haven't been part of the webinar and, and, and don't really know um, but the intent is to be as cons consistent as possible yeah. yeah that makes sense yeah I, I mean I think the challenge is for one-off permit applicants right mm -hmm. it, the, the person who does not do this regularly and will not do it again it's just hard to do that communication so that makes sense and I think you mentioned it one of the challenges of a process like this is to not have it be confused or perceived with a 
plan check. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so like keeping the items very clear and sort of broad. That makes sense. Um, I was also, and I think you sort of touched on this with place in line, but I think I got lost a little bit. I was curious, what is the process for, so if you are kicked out of intake, what is the process for reapplying? Is it, you don't set an appointment or anything, right? You can just walk back up or, or I mean, send a new uh, virtual Correct. application? Correct. Uh, yes. So that, that's a really good question because most of our applications are taken in electronically where you just submit uh, an email to a, a a gen generic, it was not generic, it's an intake email address, and then we take them in the order received. Um, internally, that goes to pre-plan check and, and the permit technicians, and they, they do a bunch of um, magic and, and they send a response back to that same email. Uh, within our published time, is a 20, is a 48-hour turnaround. We've been doing it about 24 hours or so. To get, to get them the comment of whether or not they've made it through exactly, the intake? Oh, exactly, God. because... Uh, our frequent flyers know, and also our new applicants know, that uh, they can submit it, they can submit their documentation. It's not until they get that invoice to pay the fees that they are actually submitted. Um, so our, responses, our response time has been good, and it will continue to be that way uh, based on our uh, regular flow. I think one of the challenges with, so the Division of the State Architect has a similar intake process I mean, it's very different, but one of the challenges with that process is you have to apply six weeks in advance to submit a process, or su to submit a plan set to DSA, and if you don't make it through intake, you have to, you're delayed another six weeks, you have to get back in line six weeks. Yeah. So people are very incentivized to, well, A, do completed Good plans, right. but B, kind of argue, y you know? <laughs> Just, it, I think overall that it helps the process for them as well, but incentives or disincentives make for certain actions so you'll, you'll you'll figure it out along the way i like how the next steps identifying the common errors and trying to communicate that that's also really helpful i love the sort of data analysis aspect of this whole um, effort so thanks for the update and for all your great work thank you for that commissioner summer uh we we do want to pr project the idea of facilitation as opposed to impedance and i think that's been working pretty well Opening up to my other fellow commissioners for comments. Well, I'd like to have one last comment on this. You've done so well on this effort that <laughs> I have expectations on other things that you'd like to implement to help expedite, you know, the permitting process. So you've only set the bar for yourself to, like, you know, continue with further improvements, uh, Deputy Director. So thank you. Thank you very much, President Beto. Thank you. We're on to item 11. Um, commissioners' questions and matters, inquiries to staff, 11A. At this time, commissioners may make inquiries to staff regarding various documents, policies, practices, and procedures which are of interest to the commission. Um, I'm not sure if my question is for 11, 11A or B. Um, um. But is, I, it a, is it an agenda item or a question that you're asking staff? Well, I have questions about... in. It's probably more. It's it's combined. It's a it's a it's a question that's combining both A and B. It's a oh, question to staff that okay. could potentially be on agenda. I'll just I guess I'll just read item B as well, and then okay. wherever it falls. <laughs> so I'm going to read um, item B: future meetings and agendas. At this time, the commission may discuss and take action to set the date of a special meeting and/or determine those items 
that could be placed on the agenda of the next meeting and other future meetings at the Building Inspection Commission. Um, the next meeting, if we meet in August, would be on August 17th. Okay. Go ahead. I guess my question is to Assistant Director Yasparak. I guess um, I know that the department is looking at a fee study, just understanding the timeline of that and, you know, for the commission. Um, and also uh, an understanding when when that fee study is complete, um, how they're created for uh, for projects, small, medium, you know, the different tiers of projects that I think we're now using as a category with all the four categories. So that's one question on the fee study and what the timeline is. Um, and then updates on other studies and the timeline on that so that we can track that as a commission and some expectation and also to be able to do our homework like when that study comes in when we would appropriately agendize those so that we can talk about those or ask questions that are after we've done our homework. Mm -hmm. um, regarding the fee study, uh, we are, and that process is gonna be managed by our Deputy Director for Finance and Administration who we haven't hired yet. So um, it's hard for me to provide a timeline for that right now until that person's on board and, um, and we can you know, consult with that person on um, what the timing would be. We do anticipate that we will probably engage the controller's office uh, part. Of, they have a unit called, um, what's it called? Um, performance, city performance, where they um, help departments with projects such as a fee study. So we do anticipate engaging them um, for help in setting up this fee study and implementing it. The second question you had was about other studies that I'm, I didn't quite understand what well, that I think we talked about the Gardner report that, that, that you were looking at for some of the permitting um, systems like the... Um, yes. Uh, oh, okay. So, sorry. Um, the Permit Center has engaged the Gardner Group to look at um, permitting processes across the city. That engagement began last month, um, and we, members of our team, met with the Gartner Group representatives to talk about the DVI portion of the process, but that is being managed by the Permit Center. Uh, but they are looking at it holistically, all, all the departments involved in permitting and how we can all work together better and utilize technology better. Okay. That's all. That's all my questions. Other commissioners have questions or comments? Okay. Um, then it's item 12, um, review and approval of the minutes of the regular meeting of June 15th, 2022. I'd like to make a motion to approve the minutes. Second. Second. Okay, so there's a motion and a second. Um, is there any public comment on the minutes? Okay. Okay. Um, caller, uh, you muted. Yeah, my name is Francisco da Costa, and I have something very serious to tell you, commissioners. Uh, from March, uh, somebody has been burning condominiums up at on the hill at Hunters Point. Uh, Ingalls and Oakdale. Um, I waited for some time, spoke to the inspector at the building inspection, 
and there's nothing being done, and this is a shame. They're targeting mostly black women who have children, and uh, once the unit is burned, they have the audacity to tell a woman who is traumatized to go back into the apartment. And you commissioners should know what is going on. This is not one, one condominium or two, but about four or five. And this started in March. This is July. I'm asking you to look deep into this. We must not do this to anybody, much less women with children. And why this is happening, I do not know. The other thing is, whoever is doing this is reporting to the fire department exactly where the fires are. So the fire department knows about this. People have protested. People have gone to the site and done nothing. So is this what our cities come to, where there is no empathy? There's a big difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy is doing something about it. So uh, I, I, I've been listening to your to this uh, committee. I've spoken before, but I want you to do something about the situation on a war footing. Thank you very much. Any other? No, no other comments. Okay, so there was um, a motion and a second um, to approve the minutes. Are all commissioners in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Aye. Okay, thank you. Our next item is adjournment. Motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. 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 Aye. Okay. All right. All commissioners in favor? Yes. Aye. 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 Okay. We are now adjourned. It is 1244 p.m.